Hey, hey, how's everybody doing? Hoping you're having a fantastic day. So it is May 25th. I think this is what, like our sixth or seventh week, something like that. I don't know. I think we've been going for like two months by now. But yeah, so we are this, on the second to last. Um, we are on the second to last lesson for his commentary on the Apostles' Creed. After this, we're going to be getting into the Ten Commandments. Uh, which is going to be more fun, simple stuff. Um, Ten Commandments should be a little bit easier, or maybe actually a little bit harder. Because um, I feel like a lot of people reflect on um, the articles of the faith a lot more than they reflect on the moral life. So it might actually come with a lot, a lot more difficult questions than you would expect. So, um, yeah, next week we're going to be finishing up with articles 10 11 and 12 and then after that we're going to be going on to the commentary on the 10 commandments so uh, as always before we begin um the prayer of saint thomas before study in the name of the father and of the son and of the holy ghost amen O infinite creator, who in the riches of thy wisdom didst appoint three hierarchies of angels, and didst set them in wondrous order over the highest heavens, and who didst apportion the elements of the world most wisely, do thou who art in truth the fountain of light and wisdom, deign to shed upon the darkness of my understanding the rays of thine infinite brightness, and remove far from me the double darkness in which I have been born, namely sin and ignorance. Do thou who give a speech to the tongues of little children, instruct my tongue and pour upon my lips the grace of thy benediction. Give me capacity to understand, uh, keenness of apprehension, method in the ease and learning, insight and in interpretation, and copious eloquence and in speech. Instruct my beginning, direct my progress, and set thy seal upon the finished work. Thou who art true God and true man, liveth and reigneth, world without end. Amen. St. Thomas Aquinas, pray for us. Okay, so that was a different version, actually, of the uh, of the Creator Nefabilis than I'm used to, and I really don't like that. So next time I'll know to switch back. Okay, so um, let's get right into it. Okay, so Articles 7, 8, and 9, these are going to be relatively quick, I think. I know I said that last week. But I think these will actually be relatively quick because we're going to be talking about uh, the final judgment. We're going to be talking about the Holy Spirit. We're going to be talking about the Catholic Church. Um, all, I think, relatively benign uh, subjects, at least in the way in which St. Thomas treats them. So with the judgment, St. Thomas is going to treat that, uh, at least I thought, in a, um, a more devotional way. So he's going to start by um, connecting it to the previous article. If we remember back in Article 6, we discussed the ascension and all of that fun stuff. So once Christ has ascended, there's actually an ordering. Um, this is interesting. Uh, there's actually an ordering to the articles of the Apostles' Creed. They didn't just get put randomly in there uh, just because uh, the early church felt like it. Actually, the uh, early church knew what they were doing. Um, and they ordered them in a rational way. So we have the uh, ascension to heaven and sitting at the right hand. That is the place from which Christ judges, the right hand of God. So that's why the judgment comes after the ascension. So um, 
So he goes over some facts about the judgment. That's basically what it is. So first we have Christ is the judge. We know he's the judge because um, God has the right to judge. But according to the divinity, God cannot be seen. And then in judgment, we have the right to see who we're being judged by. So it has to be Christ because Christ is both going to be visible, uh, which is necessary in the nature of a judge, and then also um, be God, which is necessary in this case. And it's most fitting because of his unjust judgment. God was, uh, Christ was uh, judged. Uh, unjustly by man therefore he um, is most fittingly um, placed in a position to justly judge all men then he goes over uh, I, I didn't know what you guys thought about this uh, this is really interesting I've actually never really seen um, this scheme being drawn out but he draws the distinction between four groups of men who are going to be judged so the first one are going to be the wicked who are infidels so they're going to be condemned but not judged. Second, there's going to be those who are condemned and judged. Third, those are going to be saved and not judged, and then those who will be saved and judged. So those are those are the four groups. I, I don't know what I don't know what you guys uh, thought about that. Did anybody have any like thoughts? Think it's weird or anything like that? Yeah, exactly. That's like a really, uh, he discusses this. I'm going to specifically, if you don't remember the text, I'll specifically pull it up. Um, uh, there you go. Right here. Um, of the wicked, some will be condemned, but not judged. They are the infidels who works are not to be discussed because as St. John says, he does not believe is already judged. Others will be both condemned and judged. They are those possessing the faith who depart this life in mortal sin, for the wages of sin is death. They are, shall not be excluded from the judgment because of the faith which they possessed. So it's like, what, what, is, what is this difference between condemnation and judgment? Well, I think what St. Thomas is getting at is he's getting at the judgment, well, the judgment which is based on the divine law in general, so that which has to do with um, hell. Uh, and then on the other hand, we have the judgment with it which is based on evangelical perfection and the judgment which is based on evangelical perfection um that's going to have to do with merit and demerit so when it comes to those who are um infidels infidels aren't even going to be judged on the evangelical law because they had no idea about the evangelical law they're going to be judged by their own consciences which have to do with the um which with the the law, the natural law that everybody already knows, and they're already condemned by their unbelief, already condemned by their consciences. Um, so that condemnation is going to happen beforehand, but the judgment isn't going to happen because uh, judgment has to do with the evangelical law. But on the other hand, those who are apostates, they're going to be judged both in the condemnation of their consciences uh, when it comes to natural law, but also on the basis of evangelical perfection, uh, on the basis of the uh the gospel which has been promulgated to them and then i think um when it comes to the third and fourth groups which are also um a bit interesting we have that third group of the good also some will be saved and shall not be judged and then on the other hand those are going to be saved and judged so um i i think that has to do with the um the presence of certain demerits this has to do with whether somebody goes directly to the beatific vision or it has to do with um 
has to do with uh, somebody who has to pass through purgatory. I think this is uh, in context, at least, because this is a very this is a bit of a confusing passage. I, I will admit. I think in context, this has to do with individual judgment. Um, so, yeah. Did anybody anybody else have like an alternative reading? Because I thought that was like a really really uh, that that's one of the most complicated passages I think I've I've come across thus far. Um, in these sections we've been reading. Yeah, I that well, so in in context, he quotes this text um, from so oh. So for the for the YouTube people, he asked, could this be talking about like infants who kept their baptismal innocence or really anybody who keeps their baptismal innocence um, rather than like St. Paul? But in, in context, it seems uh, here you go. So the apostles and apostolic men um, and Paul is included among those are some who will uh, judge others. So I, I think it has to do with. um with those who achieve like evangelical perfection, the perfection of the spiritual life. Um, I've, I've never, I've never heard about uh, the, the Episcopal second baptism. I've, I've never heard of that. Uh, that that's a bit weird. I've, I've never heard that used in um, that context at all. I don't know. I'd have to ask somebody who's Orthodox what the heck they're getting that from. I've never heard of that. Okay, so yeah, so that that those were like the four categories. Um, but he makes this interesting uh, spiritual application uh, when it comes to uh, upon what they will be judged. So does he, uh, he doesn't, yeah, for although they depart this life in justice, nevertheless, they fail somewhat amiss in the business of the temporal matters, and hence they shall be judged, but saved. So we're, um, when it comes to the matter upon which people are judged, it's going to have to do with, uh, with both the objective sinfulness in which they fall. So I, I think this is, I think this is important. Actually, I will, I will dwell upon this for a second because um, we have to be careful. Uh, I think that we don't only strive to like be in this third, well, be in this fourth group of the saved and judged, but we have to strive um, because there is a universal call to perfection to Christian perfection. That's present. Um, this is actually something that uh, I was reading about in uh, Louis of Granada. Is uh, there, there's this universal call to perfection um, from complete habitual detach from a de habitual detachment from earthly things, um, and at least the habitual keeping of the councils. So, uh, like perfection is going to be um, to account uh, earthly things nothing. Um, and then even in like a married state, uh, habitually keeping chastity and, and even in owning wealth to account it to be nothing and, and, and so on and so forth. Um, so we, we have to we have to recognize that that is what everybody is called. To. It's not just a special calling uh, for the religious. 
Um, and this is something that came through actually very clear in Vatican II uh, through the inf influence of Father Gary Goulagrange, um, that there is a universal call to holiness. And universal call to holiness has to do with the universal call to Christian perfection, universal call to the keeping of the councils, each in our own estate. So that those, those who uh, achieve this degree of perfection uh, when it comes to the keeping of the councils, those are those who will be um, saved and not judged. But those who fall short of Christian perfection and uh, are rather um, possessors of sanctifying grace, yet not in its full flowering, and its full effects in the keeping of the councils, those, although they do die in a state of righteousness, are going to be amiss in the business of temporal matters. They're going to be amiss in the business of temporal matters. So you have attachments. You have attachments. You have a too great attachment um, to, I don't know, food and drink, and too great of an attachment to uh, many things. This is why you see the the saints beating down their bodies so vigorously. Uh, I, I was I was reading about one saint who he used to uh, every time he would get food besides vegetables and herbs, like if he made himself a stew or something, he would like put ashes in in the food, which yeah, doesn't, doesn't sound too good. But the reason these guys did these things is so they wouldn't taste such a sweetness as to become attached to it. Rather, they be, they wanted to become detached all things that they may become attached in an even greater manner um, to God. So this is this is why uh, we read about those um, insanely intense uh, penances that were done uh, by the saints. So uh, our response to this is supposed to be one of fear, uh, not not uh, actually uh, actually yes. So so there's there's two sort of two uh, types of fear. So the one type of fear is called servile fear. That is the, the fear that one has like a slave of their master, that sort of fear. And that is an imperfect uh, type of fear. Because if we look in Isaiah um, 10, we see that the gift of fear is something which is said to be given to our Lord. Now, how could our Lord fear in a servile manner? That doesn't make any sense. So there has to be a second type of fear, a more perfect type of fear. And this fear is the is called filial fear. So it's the fear of separation. So uh, when when we when we approach God uh, in perfect fear, we are fearing anything that can separate ourselves from Him. And those things that separate our, us from Him are the imperfections and then uh, also sins. So uh, we ought to have this fear uh, in the judgment. For on the basis of four different things, the wisdom of the judge who will know all things, the power of the judge who will uh, affect retribution, the inflexible justice of the judge, and the anger of the judge. Because these four things will bring about um, certain effects to any sort of imperfection or sin uh, that is still present uh, to us in the in the judgment. So these are uh, these are various points of meditation and then there's four remedies so remedies so if uh if you are um uh in if you are going to be uh judged and condemned or condemned uh, on the on the basis of any of these the four remedies are um to do good works confession repentance for sins committed 
and then making satisfaction for them, the giving of alms, and then charity. So, um, and I, I would just want uh, to make it clear that St. Thomas uh, in this exposition is speaking a little bit uh, colloquially. He's not saying that somehow um, through these things we're going to affect uh, our own um, conversion or anything like that. He's not saying you need to do like 37 works and two alms and therefore you're going to be uh, moved off of the naughty list. That's not what he's saying. But really uh, what he is saying is he's uh, talking about how to achieve um, perfection uh, in this life and how to um, how to do the opposite of that which we will be uh, judged upon. So good works uh, that has to do uh, good works has to do with uh, the opposite being um, sins, confession, repentance, and then sorrow uh, and shame and satisfaction that has to do with atoning for sins already committed. The giving of the giving of alms uh, that's really a species of good works, and then charity uh, also is bound up with good works. So really, there's there's both a positive and a negative uh, response. Positively, we're supposed to work towards perfection. Uh, then negatively, we are supposed to um, satisfy uh, for for sins, uh, either by repentance or uh, by uh, our penances. So, okay, let me check the live chat. Nothing on the live chat. Anybody have questions? I'll have to check to see if there's any. We good? Okay, good. I hope I didn't do a terrible job explaining that. Okay, so uh, next we're getting into the belief in the Holy Spirit. Uh, we, we get to go all the way back to... Um, that which we talked about before, which we talked about, uh, I think last week is when when we talked about it. That is the the sun's procession by way of intellection. So if you if you don't forget, I think this is a third week in a row that I'm gonna that I'm gonna explain this. But basically, uh, the the basically as we have a word, a mental word, which proceeds from our intellect, yet isn't like our spoken word in that it proceeds out. So also, is there this um, mental word in God? I just want to explain it like that, where um, from God's uh, infinite and perfect knowledge of himself, uh, rather than in, in us, there, in us, there's like an imperfect, non-subsisting, accidental word in our intellect. But in God, this, uh, this self-knowledge is something which is uh, perfect and infinite. So there's, a, there's an imminent uh, procession of a perfect and subsisting uh, word, which is the Son of God. And uh, there's something similar that happens because there's a second faculty of our soul. So we don't only have an intellect in, uh, in our souls. We also have a will. And the will is ordered towards good. The, uh, the, the best act of the will is gonna, going to be love. So um, not only... Uh, is there going to be a procession by way of intellection, but also there's going to be this procession by way of volition or by way of will. And this is going to be um, the subsisting uh, love of the Father and the Son, which is the Holy Spirit. 
So this is actually a bit harder to illustrate um, because with when it comes to our intellects, we can kind of think about our, our mental word that we produce uh, imminently from, from our from our intellection. But it's a bit harder when it comes to our will because uh, there, there's really like this kind of, I guess you could say flutter, uh, if you want to put it like that, of our will, um, which is sort of beginning of our love of something else i i guess if you want to if you want to state it like that or there's some sort of like uh ordering towards which is present uh in, in our will before there's like that actual you know transient act or anything like that but yeah it's it's really it's really hard to um describe it so usually we we describe it by reference to uh, the intellect. It's kind of like what happens with our intellect, but in our will. Uh, so, so we don't have a word, uh, no pun intended, like mental word. So that's why we, we name the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit. Uh, we don't really have a, uh, a specific fun word like word uh, to name the, the Holy Spirit. So Holy Spirit is something very, very general, or, or we name uh, the Holy Spirit gift or love of the Father or, or so on and so forth. So what's going to be really important for St. Thomas's devotional uh, reflections here is going to be the, uh, the fact that the Holy Spirit is love uh, in proceeding by way of volition. So uh, he's going to point out that there's five phrases uh, in the uh, – sorry, Augustine's just screaming out Dada right now and <laughs> made me lose my focus – um, so there's five phrases in the Nicene Creed, uh, which deal with five errors. Uh, they're relatively easy. First is that the Holy Spirit is Lord. He's not like the other spirits. Second is, um, that the Holy Spirit is the giver of life, which if you didn't catch this, uh, this is actually in reference to, uh, the Holy Spirit as charity, as the love of the father and the son, because the Holy Spirit gives charity or at least that is appropriated to the Holy Spirit, the working of the Holy Trinity in the soul, into giving charity, because charity is the life of the soul. Uh, third, uh, the filioque uh, is is expressed. And that is uh, that also has to do with consubstantiality, that there is a, a certain unity of substance between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. The fourth, uh, it's mentioned that the Holy Spirit is adored, which also has to do with divinity. And then last, uh, that the Holy Spirit spoke through the prophets, which has to do with the unity of, um, really has to do with the personality of the Spirit as well, because you can't, uh, an impersonal force doesn't really speak through something. Um, but also it has to do with the unity of the Spirit in Old and New Testaments, uh, that there's not like some sort of uh, break between the two. Um, but yeah, he, he also mentioned these two random errors, which I thought was interesting. The error of the, the Priscillians and the error of the Manichaeans. Where is it? Right down here. So he says that they're condemned uh, by that the Holy Spirit spoke on behalf of uh, God, that the Holy Spirit spoke through the prophets. He says the Manichaeans are condemned because they don't think the Old Testament God is the same God. And then the, uh, the Priscillians. So fun, fun, <laughs> fun thing going on here. And uh, Montanus, uh, if, if you ever heard the Montanists, uh, the, there were some weird charismatic movements in the early church who basically believed that the prophets um, somehow went beside themselves. So they went to some sort of ecstasy uh, in writing 
uh, the book. So there's a mechanical dictation of God, kind of like think about the way that Muslims uh, uh, popularly think about Quranic inspiration is like, oh, it has nothing to do with Muhammad. Muhammad uh, was just a mere sort of vehicle without any sort of interaction uh, from Muhammad's uh, own knowledge, uh, literary style and et cetera. So that's that's how they would have thought about the uh, thought about the inspiration of scripture. Uh, that there is some sort of ecstasy that happens, and then they're they're just like the, the pen of the Holy Ghost without any sort of interaction from the prophet himself. But um, discussions about inspiration are kind of uh, beside the fact, though. So then he goes uh, over the ben the five benefits of the Holy Spirit, and this is why uh, devotion to the uh, Holy Spirit's very important. Um, the, there's the uh, Veni Creator Spiritus. Uh, that, that's a very good prayer to pray very often. Um, having a devotion to the Holy Spirit's extremely important, uh, especially because the, the gifts of the Holy Spirit, which he's not going to get into here, but the gifts of the Holy Spirit are said to be perfecting habits of the virtues. So the gifts, Holy, the gifts of the Holy Spirit make us docile to the working of God. Um, the gift of the gift of uh, fortitude, the gift of piety, the gift of counsel, the gift of wisdom, the gift of understanding. Uh, all, all of these uh, are, are, are very important uh, when it comes to our study of theology, when it comes to just our day-to-day -day life. Um, having a deep understanding of all of the seven gifts is, is very important uh, for knowing when to invoke uh, the Holy Spirit and under what aspect a good a good prayer specifically for the gifts of the holy spirit uh saint bonaventure uh, has one um uh where he um invokes them and then kind of uh, although i don't i don't like some of the uh some of the way this is translated so if anybody actually knows about saint bonaventure the original uh latin prayer I actually would like that because i want to either retranslate this or just pray with the latin version because some of these translations are kind of uh cringe so, um, yeah. Okay, so he uh, gives five benefits to the Holy Spirit. Cleansing from sin, uh, enlightening the intellect, assisting us, and compelling us to keep the commandments. So I, I thought this was really interesting, uh, actually, this language of compelling us to keep the commandments. It's very clear that St. Thomas, uh, in his view of our... Uh, reliance upon the grace of the Holy Spirit has a very strong reliance. St. Thomas is no uh, Molinist on, on this regard. He, he has a very strong view of the fact that um, we we can even describe the Holy Spirit's working in us as compulsion, uh, just because of um, how glorious the uh, state of grace is, and also how uh, deeply we have fallen uh, by the fall of our first parents. So um, fourth is he strengthens us in the hope of eternal life because he's our pledge. So by having the Holy Spirit, uh, we can know that we have hope for eternal life. And then lastly, uh, he consoles us and teaches us when we are in doubt. So are there any uh, questions before we get into what everybody uh, always wants to talk about, and that's ecclesiology? Okay, no. Okay, good. Dang. What's up? Yep. 
Yeah, per- personally, I actually, um, I do think some of the historic uh, language about the reforms. So he was, so for everybody on YouTube, he was asking about um, the language of compelling and how we can uh, sort of discuss this in relation to uh, re- reform thought. So um, if the, the the common term is Calvinist. Uh, so I actually, that that's that's a bit of my background uh, actually in, in my education wise and also uh, ecclesiastically. So um, when it comes to reformed XB, could you uh, mute yourself real quick? Thank you. Thank you, buddy. So when it comes to uh, reform thought and how reconcilable uh, its views on the movement of the Holy Spirit and our wills, I think it is extremely uh, reconcilable. I, th- I think some of the historic language uh, used to condemn um, the reformed on some of these points uh, aren't uh, really fair. Um, because what we have to understand is that every move, especially in the life of grace, so we're just talking about the life of grace, but in the life of grace, every single salvific movement um, finds its fontal origin in the working of the Holy Spirit. Now, it's difficult for us to uh, sort of square the two. So how can we have where the Holy Spirit is compelling or working within us, and then us also retain the the dignity of liberty that we have as uh, creatures, as intellectual creatures, that is. So um, the reason that this is difficult is because God's causality uh, in the world is not as our causality. So with our causality, if we uh, want, let's say, um, this happens a lot, but let's say you're in like the store with your kid. I don't know how many of you have kids, but let's just pretend you have a kid. And you need to go down a certain aisle, but they, uh, as kids do, kind of want to run to a different place and and cause mayhem. So you just grab them by the hand and you kind of like drag them to the aisle that you need to go to. This is how we think of like compulsion or compelling is that you're doing something against another person's will. So there's another way in which we can, um, which we can uh, work within another person. So let's say uh, your your kid's a bit older and they want to go something, uh, go down that other place to cause mayhem. And then you uh, speak to them and you're like, hey, uh, if you follow me down this aisle and uh, we go on our uh, rest of our shopping trip, then I'll give you candy. So that other way um, of bringing about the desired effect is somehow uh, with the cooperation of the other person as uh, equal causes. So we're convincing somebody else to follow us. So those are the two ways in which creatures can bring about the um, working of another intellectual creature. But when it comes to the way in which God works, God isn't bound. Uh, He isn't bound by those two uh, ways. He isn't bound by external compulsion or a sort of external convincing. Since he is the uh, creator and conserver of the will, he can work in us in such a way. Actually, his working in us is really that which establishes our liberty. 
So our liberty wouldn't even exist uh, if it wasn't for the, the, the working and the promotion of God um, in giving us the, the actuality to even will anything. So God doesn't uh, necessarily uh, need to bring us into some servile state, uh, but rather um, he, he grants us the very desire uh, for spiritual things. Um, so uh, there, there's no doubt in my mind. Um, I, I'm, I'm a little less inclined uh, to the more complicated uh, explanations on this thing. It just kind of kind of like a trust the plan sort of thing. It's just like, you know, God created and sustains us in every single moment of our existence. I'm pretty sure he could bring about our effects as prime cause uh, without sort of bringing us into this servile state of uh, forcing our hand, so to speak. So. Yeah, that's that's sort of the the explanation that I always uh, go to. Okay, good, good. Okay, I see there's a message in Commons. Um, got to go. Rip, rip. Okay, so if you have any questions along the way, just throw them in text discussion. Okay, so now we're going to be discussing. Uh, ecclesiology. So, um, okay. So he discusses here uh, in this, this actually, this first, this first paragraph is really fun. So um, I'm, I'm sure everybody's heard that Christ is the head of the church. But actually, it's also Catholic doctrine. Um, I, don't, I think the note is Catholic doctrine because it was taught in a few encyclicals. Um, so it's not dogmatic, it's doctrinal. But the Holy Spirit is actually the soul of the church. So just as Christ is the head of the church, um, and uh, we can in a certain way be described as the body of Christ, the Spirit is the soul of the church, vivifying it, uh, vivifying the church by the gifts of grace. Uh, which is brought about in us. So uh, that's that's your your fun little ecclesiology thing. But so he goes over um, what is what is known as the uh, four marks of the church. So when we are looking for the true uh, church, um, we look throughout Scripture, especially in the prophetic books, so Isaiah and Jeremiah, and also the Gospels, and what are called the pastoral epistles. Which our which are First um, and Second Timothy and then Titus, we see that the church is described uh, in certain ways. So there's certain um, attributes of the church that are necessary and that flow from it that we would be able to dis- that we would be able to identify what the church is. So it's not like um, the church has just kind of been like left in obscurity for how we will know what the church is. What is the body of Christ? What are the people of God? Uh, but there's there's certain um, attributes. So there's four of them. So the first one is unity, um, unity uh, as opposed to uh, disunity or schism or uh, heresy is actually another way because there's a disunity in belief. So um, unity. So the church is one. Church has a certain oneness to it. Uh, then the sources of this is the unity of faith, unity of hope, unity of love. And the second is that the church is holy. Uh, you guys all know this from the creed. Um, the holiness of the church. So the holiness of the church is fun because uh, 
and by fun, I just mean complicated and can sometimes frustrate people is what the heck does it mean by holiness? So um, holiness, all that means is that the church uh, is holy, of course, by the uh, by the indwelling of the spirit. So that's uh, called the ontological holiness of the church. There's also uh, what's called the moral holiness of the church. So uh, you probably you probably uh, went to mass on Sunday or uh, just generally in your uh, existence as a Catholic in this world. And you look around at all of your fellow Catholics and you think, huh, actually, uh, they don't look too holy to me. So what, 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 what do we mean by holiness? Uh, because we, we look and we see like, what is it, two thirds, three quarters of the American church, American Catholic church doesn't go to mass. And I'm sure it's just as dire in other countries. We have equal rates of uh, contraception and and uh, all, all of these other grave sins. So what what do you what do you mean? How can how can we describe the church as holy when we have all of these different uh, marks or faults or blots to it? So how can we even speak of a moral holiness of the church? I feel like most of us would rather just kind of like conveniently ignore the fact that the holiness of the church exists and just go on our uh, own merry little way. So we we can uh, we, we can look back and blame Vatican II all we want, uh, and certain people are that's going to be their cope, and they're going to go to some sort of uh, pure uh, pure group, uh, which usually isn't actually that pure. Uh, they're going to go to set of a contism or, um, or or whatever. That, that's going to be some people's solution, uh, but we have to recognize that when the church talks about the moral holiness of the church. It's very similar way to when the church speaks of the perfective rule. And uh, actually, before I get into that, uh, we have to recognize that actually this is a problem uh, that the church uh, that you have. If you've read the church fathers and you've read some of their sermons, you would recognize or, or even like the New Testament. <laughs> if you've read the New Testament, you would recognize that the mark of holiness uh, it does not mean that most Christians are going to be acting in a holy manner. Uh, of course, that that doesn't mean that uh, for the entire history of the world, I mean, for the entire history of the church, most of the church has been significantly not holy. Um, so obviously, by the mark of holiness, we don't mean that uh, the the church is somehow going to be this society of the pure. So what it does mean, uh, on the other hand, is we can give the analogy to the monastic rule. So uh, not many people know this, but just as canonizations are infallible, so also are the institution of religious rules. Uh, this is really interesting. Is the church infallibly, um, when the Holy See declares, infallibly declares that's, that religious rules are going to provide a way of evangelical perfection? that aren't going to provide a hindrance to evangelical perfection. And that if you practice your rule, you will have a certain way of perfection. Uh, that's something which is promised by the, by the church in her declaration of religious rules. So how the heck does this fit in with the mark of holiness? What am I blabbering on about? So the way in which this fits with the mark of holiness is that if you do what the church says, then you will be holy. That's all it means. If you do what the church says, then you will be holy. So if the uh, the church promises, uh, you pray your, you go to mass every week, you frequently go to confession, you pray your rosary, um, you you follow these uh, feast days and so on and so forth. The church gives us all of these various instruments uh, to holiness, uh, re the 
Pope Francis says reading your Bible is good every day. Uh, they say maybe praying your Angelus is a good idea. And you, you're attentive to what the church uh, preaches as being uh, certain means whereby to gain eternal life. You will gain eternal life. If you do what the church says and you're active, then you're going to be holy. That's all the mark of holiness is promising. The mark is, of holiness is not promising some sort of pure society where uh, we will have uh, yield trad days where the the, the base uh, trad cath edit is going to come through. And then somehow um, everybody's just going to be massively converted to uh, the faith and then nobody's going to fornicate ever again. Uh, that's that's not that's not what it means. Um, there, there will probably for the history of the church. Most of the youths will be uh, fornicators, unfortunately. And it's always, it's been like that. Uh, I, Hassan and I actually were reading something interesting of some bishops in like 7th century Gaul complaining that barely any Christians were uh, not fornicating before marriage. Um, just just because that's uh, that's just the the nature of our um, of our fallenness is a lot of people don't uh, obey the church in duly using the means of holiness. But what this does assure us with and this is a very good assurance um, is that most, most of those who just do what the church says are going to have uh, holiness. It's a great promise, ordinary holiness. And even many are going to have a, a sort of extraordinary holiness. And then there's going to be a good amount that are going to uh, have heroic holiness those who are going to die for the faith, those who are going to do insane apostolic works. This, this is what's promised to us uh, by the, the means in which the church gives us. So don't, don't get mixed up by the mark of holiness and somehow think you need to join some sort of pure group. If you just read history, if that, if that was the mark of holiness, um, don't, don't think you need to go to Eastern Orthodoxy or whatever, or Oriental Orthodoxy, or I, I don't know. I don't know what group is considered holiest, uh, right now. <laughs> it's not looking good for anybody. Uh, but if that, if that was the, um, if that's what the mark of holiness meant in the church, you wouldn't even be able to be a, uh, a Christian during the day of, of Saint of the, uh, of the Holy Apostles, uh, that that's, yeah. So um, holiness, also Catholicity, Catholicity in place, conditions in time. And then also uh, he calls it sureness, but um, uh, really it's the apostolicity that we have Christ as the primary foundation of the church who established the apostles as secondary foundations. And he actually uh, shows that this is evident. Um, interesting, interesting. He shows that this is evident through... The fact that the Church of Peter flourishes in faith and is free from error. So, really interesting. So, okay, that is uh, all we have for those. So, we have like 10 minutes until 8 o'clock. So, we're finally, finally finishing early if somebody wants to, wants to just chat about stuff. Yes. Yeah, Article 8. Mm -hmm. 
Yes, yes, that's what is uh, is meant at the beginning of Genesis when he created us in his own image. Uh, so yeah, we we have um, both a, a spiritual faculty which is ordered towards because really we can uh, in in us creatures it's not like this in God, uh, but for us creatures we can think of our intellect and will in terms of passivity and activity. Is the uh, the intellect really kind of uh, goes out and grabs stuff? Um, well, I, I intuit this um, sort of uh, what what is what is this? This is a cup. I intuit this cup, and I know this cup. And then my will is sort of passively struck uh, by the cup in in love, and it leads uh, not to contemplation but to action. And this is actually, uh, for example, um, there's a lot of reflections on this when it comes to the the nature of women uh, with activity and passivity, and there's there's a lot of stuff on this uh, when it comes to uh, gendered names and, and such, where there's a lot more. Um, this is why this is why it matters that our Lord was a man. Uh, this is why, uh, if if you look at it like in terms of quantity, the Holy Spirit uh, is generally given more feminine imagery than either the Father or the Son. Uh, yeah, so that that's that's uh that's why uh, in terms of uh, women who excel uh when it comes to love and men uh ordinarily excel when it comes to um the faculty of the intellect so yeah yes yeah, so the uh this is actually a, a point of dispute between the uh the scotus and the thomists but i think uh if we explain if we express our terms uh, correctly, then we can actually come to more agreement than disagreement. So the intellect, uh, simply speaking, so the intellect, simply speaking, is better than the will, is greater than the will. And the reason for this is that it is more immaterial. So it's further abstracted uh, from matter. But uh, when it comes to the actual uh, sort of beatific life, the actual uh, conditions of this time, because the will uh, is something which is passive and because the the will has an openness to it rather than like a determination to it. So the intellect determines things where the will sort of has this passive openness to things. And due to the in, uh, infinitude of God, when it comes to the spiritual life, when it comes to our final end, the will actually has a certain uh, superiority. Why is this? Why is to why is it greater to love God than it is to know Him? The the reason is because God's infinity, our intellect is uh, has a certain uh, limitation of its natural capacity, uh, where the will uh, doesn't have that same uh, degree of limitation bound up in its nature. The the will is sort of passive openness uh, to something. Um, so this is why, uh, for example, women excel men in the spiritual life. Ordinarily, um, women women are much better uh, when it comes to uh, mystical topics, uh, which is why when you generally look at the female doctors of the church, actually, I think this is universally. When you look at the female doctors of the church, what do they have in common? Um, none of them are are scholastics. All of them are mystics. Um, so this actually. I didn't, I didn't mean, I mean to make this a whole thing about gender, but I think that's the best way to, uh, to illustrate it. Uh, what do you mean the greatest creature is a woman? 
Well, she's she's the she's the most exalted. Uh, Our Lady is the most exalted uh, human person. Uh, we have to remember that our Lord's humanity is created. Uh, so in a certain sense, we can refer to our Lord as a, a quote, creature. Um, but yeah, so uh, in, in terms of in terms of Our Lady, uh, she does have a lot of significance uh, in this topic of the the will and the intellect, because a lot a lot of people uh, attempt to equivocate. So they'll um, and, and there's a certain of course, there's a certain degree in which this is true. We'll say, well, our, our lady is the the best uh, theologian or our lady is the best philosopher and she didn't even know how to read. Uh, therefore, like scholastic, uh, they'll, they'll use it to like in, in, a, in an abusive way to say, well, then scholastic theology and philosophy debunked. So what we have to be careful by is uh, this really actually does um, denigrate uh, is, is denigrating to our our lady's true virtue which is found in her super eminent charity is uh, is per- pretending as if like our lady was, was somehow spending her time um, on scholastic disputation is just a bit, is a bit ridiculous. Uh, I would say. Um, and it, it's just a bit of a weird uh, sort of proposition. Uh, it is that uh, due to the, due to the superiority of the will in the spiritual life, um, we don't really need to, uh, if, if we did view somehow the intellect as superior in the spiritual life in like our ordinary mode of discursive reasoning, uh, then we would have to say that our lady is the, is like somehow the, the best scholastic theologian out there. Uh, but really um, a lot, a lot of like narratives like this, I think are, are like really unhelpful and are honestly just a, a tad annoying. Um, uh, but yeah, so that's that's uh that that's the only thing i'll say about that is there any other questions okay so somebody was asking um about somebody wanted to ask about molinism but i don't really feel like talking about molinism sorry uh Okay, somebody wants me to talk about. Um, somebody wants me to comment on uh, Prima Par's question thirty nine, article eight. Sorry, this that is that is like a Saturday morning stream question. Um, I can I can answer that on Saturday morning. This isn't really a. Um, okay. So that looks like it is everything. I think so. Um, oh, one question. Somebody has a question. Okay. I will let you type that. He's typing. Yeah, sorry, uh, Anastasius, the librarian. This uh, this stream is usually just meant for catechetical stuff, the writings of Saint Thomas. This is more. Uh... 
You're welcome, Romanus. I, I myself struggled with uh, the mark of holiness for a few months. Uh, that was that was one of the it's one of the hardest uh, things to kind of get over your hump over. Okay, so uh, when discussing the church, Thomas mentioned that she has existed since Abel. How does that relate to the Reformed and Dispensationalist view of the church in the Old Testament? Okay, that's a, that's a really good question. Um, so with the, the Catholic view of the church, we can speak of the church in a broader sense, and we can speak of the church in a more narrow sense. In a broader sense, it's just the, the sort of community of the, uh, of the just. So this would include everyone from uh, the beatified souls to the souls in purgatory to like Adam and Abel, it, it would, it would, it would include like a lot of, a lot of different uh, people. And there's also the church in the narrower sense, which is the, the church militant um, after the institution of the new covenant. So um, when it comes to Abel uh, being um, one of the just, uh, it really has to do with the, okay. So I actually, I think the best way of explaining this um, which is also why we can say things like Abel believed in papal infallibility and, and other stuff like that. Um, if, if you remember when I said Moses believed in papal infallibility, this, this, is why, this is why statements like this actually work. So if you remember, uh, I, made, I made a point of pointing out the fact that the Holy Spirit is the soul of the church. Now, wherever the soul is, there is the body also. Wherever the body is, uh, there is the soul also, since the church is uh, never going to die. And there's never going to be a separation of soul and body. And where the body is, there also is the head. So that's why where the, where the church gathers, there is Christ, uh, our, our head, and then there also is the, the Holy Spirit uh, working within us. So when we speak of Abel uh, as just, so in order to have justice, there needs to be the sanctifying grace. The Holy Spirit, uh, the, 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 the uh, soul of the church is going to be present with uh, Adam, Eve, Abel, and all of the, all of the just, which, which proceed from them. So uh, when, it, when it comes to uh, Adam and Eve, we, we can speak of them uh, in that sense as members of the Catholic Church. Uh, of course, we can speak of them as members of the Catholic Church. And in like we, we can speak of when it comes to their faith, they're assenting to um, everything that God has revealed. And since God is going to going to one day reveal the uh, the institution of the papacy, we can say like, yeah, they believe in the papacy and they believe in the incarnation. They believe in the Trinity. Uh, they, they believed in, well, the Trinity is a different, and the incarnation is also a different case. But they, they believe in all of, all of these different things because they had that virtue of faith, that self-same virtue of faith that we have today. And that has been had uh, since the, the time of Adam. So, uh, yeah, that, that's that's going to be sort of the the idea of the um, the broader and the narrower view of the church. I'm not as learned on dispensationalism, but this is going to actually sharply um, disagree with the reformed view of the church in the Old Testament. And I actually think that the reformed view is is quasi blasphemous. Um, because you get all throughout the all throughout the the New Testament, clear clear as the most crystal clear water uh, that there's ever been, that grace is not given, uh, grace is not given, grace is not given, grace is not given through the old covenant. It's obvious. As much grace is given through the old covenant as is given through, um, I don't know, uh, 
through Aristotle's philosophy. Of course, I'm, I'm being like over exuberant here. Um, but grace is not given through the old covenant. What do we mean by that? We mean that the sacraments aren't physical causes of grace, just like the New, the New Testament ones are. There, there are certain moral occasions for grace. So it's kind of like actually the interestingly enough, like the reformed view of the sacraments uh, in the new covenant that by that by faith, we are by faith, the Israelites consumed uh, Christ. But in the new covenant, they're, they're actually um, a substantial presence of Christ uh, in the Eucharist where we, we consume him um, by the working of the sacrament rather than any sort of requirement of work on our part. So uh, that I, I have a huge issue with the Reformed who are going to say that there is two different administrations, but there's a single substance. That's what they say. Two administrations, one substance of the of the covenants. So there's merely accidental differences between the old and the new covenants, but there's the same sort of grace which is given. So we, while we can speak of Israel uh, as as the church in the sense that there were those in Israel um, who were just. We can't speak of uh, we can't speak of sort of Catholic Church as having this um, sort of juridical continuity between the old and the new because there's better promises in the new. Um, there's there's uh, better sacraments. There's better a better priesthood. There's better everything uh, in the new, and it's substantially different uh, than the old. And actually, when we look at um, figures like Abraham or Abel or um, Zechariah or Jeremiah or Isaiah or any any of these figures, they were saved uh, through our Lord through faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, they they weren't saved through some sort of second way uh, of the old covenant. They were saved through the new covenant, um, much in the same way. If you're familiar uh, with um, federalism, uh, that that's sort of I guess the closest Protestant. Uh, equivalent. But yeah, I, I think just from simply an exegetical point of view, uh, that's the, the biggest problem I have with the Reformed uh, on this issue. Okay, so just letting everybody know in the in the YouTube live chat, I'm not answering, uh, I'm not going to answer random questions just as it has to do with the readings, just to keep it focused. Okay, so I don't see any more questions. I'll give you guys like one more minute. Actually, there's a uh, a new prayer that uh, I found from uh, St. Bonaventure that I think is a good prayer for after study, so... Check one more time. Nope. Nothing in there. Live chat. Nothing in there. I'm I'll get to the, I'll get to the St. Alphonsus stream. Don't worry. Okay. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. O indescribable beauty of God, most high and purest radiance of light eternal. Thou art life that gives life to all life, light that illuminates all light and preserves in perpetual splendor the myriad lights shining from the very dawn of time before thy throne of divinity. O eternal and inaccessible font, O clear and sweet spring, flowing forth hidden from all mortal eyes, whose breadth and depth are unfathomable, thy purity cannot be tainted. From thou proceedeth the river that gladdens the city of God, so that with a voice of exaltation we proclaim thy greatness and sing to thee hymns of praise. For our experience shows that with thee is the source of light, 
and thy light we see light itself. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. St. Bonaventure, pray for us. Okay, everybody have a wonderful rest of your day.